Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're continuing on in our series of messages, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. Peter is writing to a group of persecuted Christians scattered across northern Turkey who had come to Christ just like you and me. They had heard the gospel, and they believed it. And they started living for Jesus, but they were living in a pre-Christian world at that time. They had not, the world had not yet heard or embraced the claims of Christ. In fact, many of the pagans felt that the claims of Christ were going to interfere with their life, and so they opposed Christians and even persecuted them. That's what was happening to this group of believers. And when you go through persecution, you want to know that this newfound faith of yours, this Jesus in whom you've trusted, is the real deal. So Peter writes this whole letter encouraging these Christians that they have a living hope in Jesus Christ that they can experience in so many ways. When you come to chapter 5, he talks about the leadership in the church. And then he addresses younger people and then really everyone that was involved in worshiping Jesus, telling them to put on the hope of humility. And this is the way he put it in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, this seems like a very peculiar thing to write to a group of suffering Christians, that they were to clothe themselves with humility. And yet this is a message as vital today as it's ever been. It is one of the keys to blessing. It's one of the keys to understand a walk with Jesus. And so, Father, today I pray you'll speak to us. Humility is something we must choose. We choose to put it on. And those who do can experience the hope humility brings. Thank you, God. Teach us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nick Walenda is a name you may have heard of. He is the most watched high-wire artist and daredevil in the world. Nick Walenda is a follower of Jesus, and he has a worldwide audience. In fact, in 2012, billions of people around the world watched as he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. A year later, in 2013, he became the first man ever to tightrope across the Grand Canyon. Walenda knows, he said, that he will be, a, be tempted from time to time by pride with all of these huge accomplishments. So... After the huge crowds and the media fade away, he engages in what he calls a simple spiritual discipline. He walks where the crowds have been and quietly picks up trash. Walenda recently wrote, my purpose is simply to help clean up after myself. The huge crowd left a great deal of trash behind and I feel compelled to pitch in. Besides, after the inordinate amount of attention I sought and received, I need to keep myself grounded. Three hours of cleaning up debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me. So if I have to force myself into situations that are humbling, so be it. I know that I need to get down on my hands and knees like everyone else. 
I do it because it's a way to keep from tripping. As a follower of Jesus, I see him washing the feet of others. I do it because I don't serve others. If I don't serve others, I will only be serving nothing but my own ego. Frederica Matthews Green in her book, The Jesus Prayer, once said, Ego builds a cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down. Humility is a character trait of choice. It's something we choose to put on to combat the sinful effects of pride. That's why Peter said we must all clothe ourselves with humility. Peter is nearing the end of his letter encouraging persecuted Christians with this message of hope. Now, after addressing the hope that can come from godly leaders, he addresses the hope that can come from clothing ourselves with humility. And he says in verse 5, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves to your godly leaders, and clothe yourselves with humility. The word clothe is interesting. It's a, it means to gird yourself up, to surround yourself with. It's a very rare word in the New Testament. It was used only to describe a slave who put on an apron in preparation for service. Humility is the deliberate act of preparation for service to God and others. Surround yourself with it, he said. Clothe yourselves. The word humility means to make yourself of low degree. It does not mean self-depreciation. It is not saying I'm a worm, I'm of no worth, I'm of no value, or those kinds of put-downs. Remember, pride can be an overinflated view of self or an underinflated view of self, but the root cause of pride is a focus on self. But humility is the opposite of that. Humility is not a low view of self, it is a no view of self. It is a focus on God and others. And Jesus was our example. Remember, here's Jesus, the all-powerful God in human flesh, humbling himself to become a man, taking the form of a servant, and making himself nothing. In fact, you remember at the Last Supper, the night before he went to the cross, you talk about taking the form of a servant. Do you remember when he got up from the table, what he did? John 13, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus got up, disrobed, and put on the garment of a slave. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Demonstrated humility. 
choosing to clothe himself with it, taking the very nature of a slave. You see, this is why Peter in 1 Peter 5 quotes from Proverbs 3, verse 34, which in the Hebrew was written in the present tense. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The present tense is significant because that means it's ongoing. God continues to oppose the proud. He continues to show favor to the humble. In other words, what Peter's describing is the reality that Jesus is our example. And God in Jesus demonstrated that humility, and God continues to demonstrate that humility of Christ in the lives of those in whom he dwells. Christ is demonstrating his humility to the world through the way you and I live toward God and one another. That's what Peter's describing. Which is why Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, there it is. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. It's a choice we make. Jesus made it. He was our example. And he said, we are to continue that example with one another. It'll be Christ in you continuing to demonstrate that. Peter told these suffering Christians to clothe themselves with humility for the same reasons, and that the living hope of God that that humility brings would fill their lives. People who clothe themselves with humility can experience the living hope of God. What is that hope? Peter said it is the hope of God's favor. It's the hope of God's hand, and it's the hope of God's care. People who clothe themselves with humility can have the hope of experiencing God's favor. He said in verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Brian Wilkerson, in a sermon called In God We Trust, though we'd rather pay cash was the title of it, he tells the story of Charlie and Agnes, a couple he knew he called two of the most meek, humble people on earth. Charlie, he said, is a bright, energetic, hardworking man who could have been successful at just about anything he set out to do. What he set out to do was mission work. He spent his entire career working with some of the lowliest people on earth, alcoholics on Skid Row. For many years, he was director of Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. And then, in his retirement years, he went to work for the Macaulay Water Street Mission in New York City. At a time in life when most people his age were playing golf or taking cruises, Charlie would commute every day to minister to homeless men on the streets of New York. You don't get rich doing mission work your whole life, but every once in a while, Charlie and his wife Agnes would get to do something special. One year, they invited me and my wife Karen to join them for a night on the town, someone had given them tickets to her Handel's Messiah at Carnegie Hall. Velvet-covered seats in a private booth. It was a great night, 
and we all enjoyed it. And as they drove us home that night, Karen and I were sitting in the back seat, and I was admiring Charlie and Agnes. They were all dressed up for their big night out. She was sitting close to him like they were high school sweethearts. They struck me in that moment as two of the happiest people on earth. Just then I noticed a little plaque they had stuck to the dashboard of their old Chevy. It explained everything. It said, God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to him. Charlie and Agnes had long ago given up striving, fretting, and demanding things from God and from life. Instead, they had surrendered to God their talents, their careers, their safety, their material needs, and even their retirement. Instead of chasing the abundant life, God was bringing it to them. I meet a lot of people who want what Charlie and Agnes have. They want peace. They want contentment. They want happiness and joy and assurance and relationship. They want to know that their life has a purpose and they're making a difference, that their life matters. The problem is that people chase after all those things in the wrong places. They try to acquire it for themselves. Charles and Agnes weren't chasing the abundant life. They were living it. It was God's favor being poured out on their humility. It's exactly what Peter told these suffering Christians to expect if they clothed themselves with humility. Peter said, God shows favor to the humble. He said in verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. He resists the proud. In fact, he sets himself up against them. It doesn't mean you can't be proud of an effort you made or a job well done. It doesn't mean you can't say, wow, I'm really proud of you today. It's not that kind of thing. The kind of pride which Peter is addressing is the pride of arrogance, of self-exaltation, of self-focus. God opposes it because this kind of pride is so sinful and destructive. Remember, it was this kind of pride that caused Satan to fall. It was this pride that caused humanity to fall. It was this pride that caused people to refuse to submit to God or even be open to him. Do you remember in Psalm 10, verse 4? In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. In his ways are always prosperous, Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. People get so caught up in their own accomplishments that they have no room for God. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. That word favor is the same word for grace. And Peter reminds these people, God gives grace to live a humble life that reflects his glory and serves the needs of others. God gives the grace to those who see their need for God and surrender their lives to him. 
God gives the grace to be able to submit to God and one another in ways you know that on your own you never could do. You wouldn't do. But God gives you the favor to do it. Warren Wiersbe, author, pastor, radio commentator, once wrote, the only antidote to pride is the grace of God. And we receive that grace when we yield ourselves to him. The evidence of that grace is that we yield to one another. Humility is something we choose to clothe ourselves with. It's a position of service to others and a surrender to God. It's not a me first. It's a God first and others first approach to life. And those who clothe themselves with Christ-like humility can experience the living hope of God's favor that this humility brings. And not only God's favor, but people who clothe themselves with humility can have the hope of being lifted up by God's hand. Peter said in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. John Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, illustrates the beauty of this kind of humility in the life of a man named Sir Edmund Hillary. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man to conquer Mount Everest with his Sherpa friend and guide, Tenzin Norgay. Consequently, in that same year, Hillary was knighted. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's highest commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. And in 1995, he received the British realm's highest award, the Order of the Gate. The Order of the Gator, excuse me. It's only given to 24 people. But despite Hillary's achievements and rewards, he maintained a humble outlook and a readiness to serve others. And John Dixon, in his book, tells about a time where Sir Edmund Hillary demonstrated the humble nature that he carried in everything he did. On one of the many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. They begged for a photo with the great man, and Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick so he would look the part and set up the photograph. But just then, another climber passing the group and not recognizing the man at the center strode up to Hillary saying, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. Everyone stood in awed silence waiting to see what Hillary was going to do with this novice instructing the greatest climber that's ever climbed how to hold an ice pick. He simply let the man show him how to do it. At the end, he thanked him. And after holding the pick the way it had been adjusted, he invited them to happily join them in the photograph. Dixon went on to write, it doesn't matter how experienced that other climber was, his greatness was diminished by his intrusive presumption. We are repelled by pride. Edmund Hillary's greatness, however, was enhanced by his humility. God uses pride to diminish some men. He uses humility to exalt others. 
the kind of humility that Peter said all of us need to be clothed in. Peter told these suffering Christians to humble themselves and God would lift them up. Humble yourselves, therefore, he said, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourself. Choose to make yourself of low degree. Do not seek to exalt yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Don't seek to take credit. Don't highlight your accomplishments. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Peter's reminding them that everything you accomplish or ever will accomplish has been accomplished by God's mighty hand. So submit yourself to God's mighty hand. Give him the credit and the glory. And he will lift you up. He will exalt you. He will lift you up because you are lifting him up. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verse 11? The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus gave a very practical example of that humbling and what it looks like to humble yourself at a parable when they were attending a wedding feast together with his disciples. Luke 14, verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked up the places or picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Apparently, Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. And when they showed up to the wedding feast, dressed in their very common garb, they stood there noticing that there were people coming in vying for the places of honor at the table. And Jesus saw it as a great opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson in life. And so he said to them in verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place because it'll be the only one that's left. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see what he's teaching? It's a choice you make. You don't make that choice so you'll be exalted. You make that choice because that's what you desire. I want the lowest seat. Don't do anything to draw attention to yourself, Jesus said. Choose to take the lowest positions in life and God can exalt your example for his glory. In due time. In due time. When the time is right, referring ultimately to the return of Jesus. Which is what Peter was referring to when he wrote in the opening of the letter of 1 Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when? When Jesus Christ is revealed. 
It will result in praise, glory, and honor in due time. When the time comes due to exalt Jesus, your submission to God will result in praise, glory, and honor to him. In due time, you will be exalted with Jesus because your life was humbly lived to exalt him. So we need to learn to trust God's person. We need to learn to trust God's word. We need to learn to trust God's ways. And we need to learn to trust God's timing. Because one of the evidences of pride in a person's life is that they become impatient with God when they have to wait on things or things don't happen the way they think they should. Lord, look at all I'm doing for you. I'm living for you. I'm obeying you. I'm doing my devotions every day. I'm serving at the church. And I've got this mess happening. This ain't right. This shouldn't be happening to me. And besides that, I've been praying for all these things, and I'm not seeing anything happening. I'm doing everything you're telling me to do, and I'm not seeing you work. Something's wrong here. You see, we want God to operate in our time, in our way, and we become irritated and become even accusing of him if we don't see it going the way we think it ought to go. Because you see, that kind of attitude is not about exalting God, it's about exalting us. I want it to be on my time, my way. I've earned this. I've done it right. I deserve this. You hear that? That's pride. And God opposes that. It has the great veneer of looking very spiritual and committed, but deep down, it's all about, I'm going to get this if I do this. God opposes that. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that in due time he will lift you up. People who clothe themselves with this humility can have the hope that this humility brings. God's hand. And not only God's favor and lifted up by God's hand, but people who clothe themselves with humility can have the hope of living in the peace of God's care. Peter said in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you've watched TV news for any amount of time, you may have, be familiar with the name John Stossel. He's a TV journalist. He has a lesser known brother named Scott, Scott Stossel, who's editor of a magazine called The Atlantic. And in The Atlantic magazine, a couple of years ago, Scott Stossel shared openly about his lifelong attempts to deal with the anguish of anxiety. From an early age, he's been what he calls a twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. And Stossel writes, even when not actively afflicted by acute episodes of anxiety, I am buffeted by worry. And so Stossel adds, here's what I've tried to do to deal with my anxiety. I've tried individual psychotherapy, three decades of it. Family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, interoceptive exposure therapy, in vivo exposure therapy, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, prayer, 
acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and audio tapes I ordered off a late-night TV infomercial. And I've tried medications, lots of medications. Thorazine, amipramine, dezipramine, chloroforminamine, or whatever it is, Nardil, Boostbar, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Celexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Luvox, Trezodone, Levoxil, Inderol, Tranxine, Cerax, Centrax, St. John's Wort, Zolpiderm, Valium, Libriderm, Librium, excuse me, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. And besides all that, I've tried beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. And he said, here's what worked. Nothing. <laughs> 30 years he's been trying every available means to rid himself of anxiety. Nothing's worked. Robert Lay in his book, Anxiety Free, Unravel Your Fears Before They Unravel You, said, our levels of anxiety have so increased dramatically over the last 50 years in America. He said the average American child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. Material comfort and security may be higher than it was back then, but another prevailing, other prevailing issues like separation from extended family, loss of community and neighborhood, uncertain employment, Threats of terrorism, uncertain futures, high medical costs, immersion in technology, and lack of emotional support are a few of the many contributing factors. Psychologist Leahy went on to say, we live in the age of anxiety. We've become a nation of nervous wrecks. But what's interesting to me is even the secular world is beginning to discover the difference a caring God can make. In an article that was on the WashingtonTimes.com, a study by Rush University Medical Center in Chicago found that belief in a concerned God can improve response to medical treatment in patients diagnosed with clinical depression. The operative word here is caring, the researchers said. The study found that those with strong beliefs in a personal and concerned God were more likely to experience improvement. In our study, the positive response to medication had little to do with the feelings of hope that typically accompany spiritual belief, said study director Patricia Murphy. The improvement in healing was tied specifically to the belief that a supreme being cared. That's what Peter told these suffering Christians. You can have hope in the midst of your trials because God cares for you. And Peter said, therefore, we can cast all our anxiety on him. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The word cast is throw upon. It's very graphic. It's an aorist tense verb. It, it means literally to take and to throw. So when worry or anxiety comes in you, Peter is saying, you pick that up and you throw it. This is not mine, God. I don't want it. I don't want it near me. It's not mine to carry. I can't handle it, and it doesn't do any good. It accomplishes nothing. So I'm taking it, and I'm throwing it on you. 
And I can do this because you care for me. A phrase that describes real forethought and interest in our well-being. And it's not just God cares for everybody. He does. But more personally, God cares for you, Peter said. What you're going through, what you're carrying, and whether you will throw your anxiety on him. He cares for you. You see, this is what Jesus was talking about when he described to the, to the crowds in Matthew 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. My father-in-law used to say, I've got so few, I've given them names. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, if God cares about sparrows who fall to the ground and he cares about you enough to know every hair that's on your head, then don't be afraid. He cares for you. How do we cast all our anxiety on him? The Apostle Paul said you do it in prayer and a focus on God's person. Prayer and God's person. Do you remember in Philippians 4, verse 4? He wrote these words that seem so unreal to us, but they're true and they work and they're real. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which will make no sense to the natural self, your friends won't understand it, you won't understand it, but you'll feel it. It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Don't worry about anything, he said. Pray and lay your concerns on God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. People, you don't do this once. You do it continually. I have worries sometimes and anxieties that come on me throughout the day. And each time I have to bring them back and lay them at Jesus' feet. I have to cast it on him. And if it comes back, I cast it on him again. And I'm finding one of the side benefits of this. He keeps driving me back to Jesus. I have more time with him. You focus on God and his word. You focus on what's true. You focus on what's right. You focus on what's excellent. You focus on who God is and all that he does. You realize he's in control. He's in charge. He loves me and cares for me. So these things I don't need to worry about. I cannot solve these. And the peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. People, I can't tell you how many times with anxieties welling up in me for so many things I'm responsible for and the outcomes can be eternal. I find myself going in my living room 
picturing Jesus sitting on my couch. And I get down on my knees and I lay my head in his lap. He's that real. And I just thank him for who he is. I thank him for what he does. And I say thank you for being here today because I can't carry this. And all the worry in the world isn't going to change it. It's only going to wear me out. And it's going to destroy faith. I need to trust you, Jesus. Take this. Just take it. I may be back here 50 times today, but I need you to take this right now. I'm casting it on you. And I know you care for me. People, I can't tell you how in those moments, how many times I have felt the peace of God that passes all understanding. It doesn't make any sense. But suddenly it's there. Because the God of peace is there. He's right there. Paul said, in everything when you do that, rejoice and give thanks. You know why? I think over time you begin to realize when things mount up and the worries get great, if it drives me back to Jesus and I experience more of him, I'm learning to say, God, thank you for these things because I'm finally learning how much you care for me. Who knew God's care better than Peter? He saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. Remember that? I don't know if he ever forgave Jesus for that, but he saw, <laughs> he saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He saw Jesus provide a net-breaking haul of fish after Peter fished all night and caught nothing. He came up empty-handed. Jesus, put your net down. I'll fill your boat. When he had no money to pay his temple tax, he saw Jesus provide his coin for the temple tax in the mouth of a fish. He walked with Jesus on the water. You remember when he started to drown? He saw Jesus lift him up, see him safely in the boat. He saw Jesus restore Malchus's ear after Peter tried out his hand with a sword and lopped off the guy's ear. When Peter was in prison, Jesus sent him angels to set him free. And even after Peter had denied him, even knowing him, Remember, Jesus met him after the resurrection. He asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he restored him. Jesus wasn't going to leave planet Earth until he restored Peter in relationship and service with him. Peter knew what he spoke when he told these people, Jesus cares for you. So whatever it is, you cast it on him. You cast it on him. It's the same thing that King David learned. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And if you do that, I love the way Warren Wearsby put it. He said, you, you do this with God. Cast that on him and he'll do these things. He gives us the courage to face our cares honestly and not run away. He gives us the wisdom to understand the situation. He gives us the strength to do what we must do. And he gives us the faith to trust him to do the rest. When you humble yourselves before this God and cast all your anxiety on him, you can experience this living hope that this humility brings. We have a choice. We can humble ourselves or God will humble us, but God will oppose the proud. 
Many of you are old enough to remember January 28, 1986. If you witnessed what happened there, you'll, it'll come back to your mind when I say it. NASA was planning to launch the Space Shuttle Challenger from Kennedy Space Center, a mission that included a school teacher named Krista McAuliffe from New Hampshire. The launch had already been delayed a few times. On the night before the new launch date, NASA held a long conference call with engineers from Morton Thiokol, the contractor that built the Challenger's solid rocket boosters. Alan McDonald was one of the Thiokol engineers. On the day of the launch, it was unusually cold in Florida, which concerned McDonald because he feared that his company's O-ring seals in the Challenger's big joints wouldn't operate properly at that temperature. Since, since the boosters had never been tested below 53 degrees, McDonald recommended the launch be postponed again. But NASA officials overruled McDonald and requested that the responsible Morton Thiokol official sign off on the decisions to launch. McDonald refused to sign the request, but his boss did. And the next morning, McDonald and millions of other people around the globe watched as a mere 73 seconds into the flight, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded into flames. After the accident, a review showed the cause of the explosion to be what McDonald had feared. The O-rings failed to hold their seal in the cold temperature. In other words, some people in the know had foreseen the, the exact cause of the failure. So why, even with that warning, did NASA push on? Alan McDonald claims that NASA fell prey to the oldest and most basic sin, pride. He went on to say NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by a, for a quarter of a century and had never lost a single person going into space. And they had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. Seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance that you shouldn't have. But they hadn't stumbled yet. And so in pride, they pressed on. There are two basic approaches to dealing with pride. You can humble yourself or you'll be humbled by what your pride creates. Obviously, the people who decided to press forward that fateful January morning were greatly saddened and humbled by the effects of their prideful decision. Peter reminded these persecuted Christians don't wait for your circumstances or God to humble you. You humble yourselves. Peter tells them to clothe themselves with humility and experience the hope that comes from God. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The hope of God's favor, the hope of God's hand, and the hope of God's care. A real hope in a hopeless world. Father, I have a lot to learn about this. But what was true for these persecuted Christians is true for all of us. We humble ourselves or we are humbled by the circumstance that our pride creates. 
God, we want you to be exalted in our lives. You're a faithful God. And what better time to demonstrate that faithfulness than in these trying moments? So God, help us to humble ourselves before you and before each other. That we may know God's favor. We may know God's hand to lift us up in due time. And that we may know even more how much you care for us. We thank you, God, for this reminder in Jesus' name. Amen.